Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis, a podcast on the New Books Network. My name is Jordan Osserman, your loyal host for today. And with today's episode, I'm excited to be inaugurating a new series for our podcast focused on psychoanalysis and time. So I'm producing uh, this series of interviews in collaboration with Waiting Times, a multi-stranded research project on the temporalities of healthcare. Waiting Times is funded by the Wellcome Trust and takes place across Birkbeck, which is in the University of London, and the University of Exeter. Our project investigators are Lisa Beretzer and Laura Salisbury, and uh, I'm personally a postdoctoral researcher on a strand of the project called The Psychic Life of Time, based in the Department of Psychosocial Studies at Birkbeck. Uh, you can learn more about this project by visiting whatareyouwaitingfor.org.uk or follow us on the Twitter at what is waiting. So for the first episode of this new series, I'm delighted to be speaking to Chen Yang Wang about his brand new book entitled Subjectivity in Between Times, Exploring the Notion of Time in Lacan's Work. Chen Yang Wang is a postdoctoral fellow at East China Normal University, Shanghai. His research interests include psychoanalytic theory, gender studies, and continental philosophy. Um, and Chen Yang and I were colleagues in psychosocial studies at Birkbeck while we were completing our PhDs. Uh, we were both supervised by Stephen Frosch, who organized monthly meetings for his supervisees to discuss our work together, um, which is how we discovered our shared interest in Lacan and got to know one another. Chen Yang received his PhD uh, from psychosocial studies at Birkbeck in 2018. Uh, so Chen Yang, thank you so much for agreeing to join us. Hi, Jordan. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, so um, could you begin just by telling us about uh, your own interest in Lacan and psychoanalysis and um, what what brought this book about? Um, well, I think I became interested in psychoanalysis um, first during my undergraduate years at Beijing. I majored in sociology and I read broadly on topics related to critical theory, uh, gender studies, and psychology as well. But in fact, I didn't find Freud's work or psychoanalysis in general very interesting at the beginning because all the conventional interpretations that I came across. It was not until my familiarity with Zizek and some other postmodern French thinker that I began to read some psychoanalysis from a different perspective. And I began to saw its potential to respond to uh, important social, philosophical, and political problems. And uh, in terms of how this book comes about and uh, how I started this project, I think it uh, comes when I first come across many interesting arguments about uh, memory, history, uh, sexual development, and the temporal movement in Lacan's work. Uh, so for me, it's clear that Lacan has said quite a lot about time, but no one has yet provided a very systematic examination of this topic in Lacan's work. So my project, therefore, I believe serves two purposes. One is to provide a theory of time 
that help us understand Lacan's key idea and themes, uh, in particular his theorization of subjectivity. The second is to make an original contribution to the continental philosophy of time that is able to provide some meaningful answers to the question of the temporal nature of our life, the meaning of the world, the body, and the language. Okay, that's that's really great, and we'll um, we'll delve into uh, the themes of the book in a second. But I'm just if I'm just curious a bit more about. Um, so you, you you grew up in in China and did your undergraduate in Beijing, and then you came to the UK to do your postgraduate degree. Um, what what is the reception of psychoanalysis like in China right now? Because I, I imagine a lot of our listeners would be very curious to learn about that. Uh, yes. Um... In my own understanding, I think in China today, I would say that psychoanalysis is quite well received uh, as a therapeutic techniques at this moment. And uh, many articles or research I come across are talking about uh, China is one of the most promising market for psychoanalytic practitioners. And uh, many foreign organizations, including the British Psychoanalytic Society, have sent their experts and uh, uh, analysts to China to help teaching and training Chinese people. Uh, one reason for the growing of this market in China, I believe, is that uh, there are dramatic demand for mental health services. And uh, the reason for that may be because of the general improvement of people's life, but also the high-pressured modern life and its conflict with the traditional Chinese social and family values, which only becomes evident in contemporary societies. So uh, I can say a lot of my friends and uh, uh, colleagues go to the universities and uh, training organizations to in order to find some solutions to helpless people who are suffering through psychoanalysis. But uh, another problem I want to mention is that although their psychoanalysis is welcomed as a therapeutic techniques, there is not enough effort to produce a psychoanalytically informed analysis to those social and cultural issues behind the current sufferings, which is maybe a blind spot that I believe Lacanian psychoanalysis and psychosocial studies can really help us to understand those social, cultural, political or backgrounds that uh, produce those anxieties or uncertainties. Mm. And so how do you find the, um, being someone who's working on Lacan in a kind of philosophical, psychosocial register, is that something that you find is, um, people are receptive to in, for example, the university where you work? Um, I think so. uh, in the university I'm working on the, in relation with my current supervisors, I think they find this approach is quite innovative and quite interesting. Although they don't have much experience doing research in the similar field, but they would encourage me to continue these approaches and maybe divide some interactions with their traditional philosophical inquiries and help to build an interdisciplinary environment where we can try to understand uh, those uh, traditional philosophical problems from different uh, perspectives. So I think uh, uh, it, uh, these psychosocial disciplines, although it's not uh, fully developed in China, 
but it may have may have a much promising future in China as well. Oh, that's that's really interesting. So it sounds like you're in something of a pioneering role then. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Well, let's let's go into the book. Um, just um, very broadly speaking, I think um, one of the key uh, issues in the book is um, that you challenge the idea of our maybe common sense way of thinking about time as a kind of linear thing from past to present to future. So what what do you think is the problem with a linear theory of time? Um, well, first, it's certainly valuable to think uh, time in a linear way. I won't deny the value of doing so. And one obvious advantage to do so is that it helps us to simplify our life and also the way events take place in time. By understanding time according to a principle of successive instant from past to present to future, we can feel a sense of control over time, and we can also have this kind of clear cut between different temporal categories and put everything in one of them. But the key problem, however, is that we somehow constructed a false equivalence between individuals' private time and the time of the world without realizing that the interaction between the subject and the structure often involves the tension between different temporal dimensions, not just our private uh, uh, sense of past, present, and the future. For example, a subject does not self-determine its own identity based on how he himself creates a narrative of his past. Instead, there are many constraints imposed upon the subjects by a uh, wilder outside the temple structures, not under his control. In this sense, to reject a linear theory of time is to help us better understand the existential meaning of living both individually and collectively. Okay, that's, yeah, that's a really helpful. And, and so one of the, I think, innovations of the book is you argue that um, thinking about time alongside Lacan, we can kind of categorize um, time within his three registers of the imaginary, mm-hmm. the symbolic, and the real. Could you explain a bit what how you define those three aspects of time? And just keeping in mind um, our, our listeners, some of whom are very familiar with Lacan, others uh, not at all. So as much as you can, if you can try and do it in a way that uh, is uh, friendly to people who might not know too much about Lacan's uh, three registers. Yeah, of course, I'll try my best. I think uh, my idea is also the major argument of my books is to say that uh, there are multiple temporal registers in Lacan's work, and also these temporal registers has effects on our everyday life. So we should not only understand time as a private or personal experience of the past, present, and future, but to see how the interactions between different temporal dimensions can form a more complex pictures of the living of human beings. The most uh, obvious ones, or the, or the ones that everyone can easily get access to is what I call the imaginary time. It's what the, our conscious interpretation of the temporal flow looks like. Uh, so it often appears in terms of the past, present, future, in terms of what happens before and what happens after. Well, this time is the time through which we construct our imaginary ego 
and it also gives coherence to our identity during its formation. So we can produce a self-narrative about what uh, my life was and uh, what I become who I am at this moment. But there are also two other temporal registers that are not easily consciously experienced. One, I would argue, is the symbolic time. It's a temporal order deprived of subjectivity, which means that it's not under my own control. And, uh, I cannot easily identify the, what is the past, what is the future in these temporal registers. Uh, it's a temporal flow in its social, cultural, or political dimensions, and it imposes its own constraints upon the individual. It heavily influences our life trajectory, but uh, uh, one cannot uh, easily uh, subvert it, or one cannot easily escape from it. So uh, I argue that this temporal register is one in which the uncertainty of our life originates, and it's also some gives us some sense of time that uh, we need to always struggle to get a meaning out of it. The third uh, dimension, which I call the real time, is experienced by the subject in momentary decisions and actions. Uh, I would say the time of the event that disrupts our sense of the self-control, and it also suspends the over-determination of the symbolic time. Uh, real time uh, does not uh, always comes to our consciousness, but uh, nor does it comes from nowhere. It's my argument that it has a solid bodily origin, so it's uh, related to our, how our body process time. Uh, but it also reveals us the significance of how time is embodied by ourselves. Hmm. I wonder if I could ask you um, methodologically how you kind of managed to come up with this quite innovative reading of Lacan, because um, we're, we're all, I guess, it's it's well known that Lacan has these categories of the imaginary, the symbolic, and the real, but um, I don't think anyone has kind of split up time in this way in particular. So how did you actually, um, what was your working process like and, and, and what led you to this way of, of reading time in Lacan's work? Uh, I think the way I, I write my book somehow reflects the way I think of the whole notion of time in Lacan's work. Uh, in, in both process, I started with this paper, Lacan's Logical Time Essay, I think it's a key, a key paper in Lacan's early stages where he focused exclusively on how the time can interact with our logical thinking and maybe become a part of our logic. And so, but by analyzing and close reading this paper, I come to realize there are some tensions or some contradictions in Lacan's writing that show me a path to the idea of multiple temporal registers. So I think the idea I put forward is to a solution that can solve some existing problems in Lacan's work. So uh, I try to further develop it and find more evidence in Lacan's other writings and use it to in this kind of dialectic ways at both to analyze Lacan's work and use Lacan's work to support my argument. Okay. 
And so, yeah, let's let's go into the, this first chapter um, of the book on logical time, because as you say, it kind of underpins, I think, the arguments throughout the entire book. So um, could you give us some kind of summary of um, what what the main argument is uh, uh, in logical in, in your reading of logical time? Um, well, actually, Lacan's this paper is quite complicated because it's a uh, uh, involves uh, solving a logical puzzle, which is this uh, three prisoner puzzles. So it's a kind of a close step by step analysis of his reading process and how I divide my own. But uh, to put it simply here, I think uh, we are trying to deal with a puzzle in which uh, uh, prisoners need to identify their own identities in the form of um, the color of the disc that they are carrying around. So there are, in the original game, there are like five discs, three in white and two in black, and each prisoner uh, can only see the disc of the others. And uh, so the key point Lacan wants to make is that time can become a logical component of one's reading process because whether one comes to the right or correct conclusion depends on how long the other two have spent thinking and uh, the exact time the other started to make decisions and uh, start to move. And so the prisoners are not just thinking in time, they are thinking um, by including time into their uh, logical process. Mm. Mm. And Lacan's perfect solution to this puzzle is that there must be a moment of hesitation and a moment of haste required for the prisoner to come to the final conclusion. But my reading uh, challenges whether this temporal experience are really necessary for the structuration of logical time. My argument instead is that Lacan's solution to the puzzle relies on an assumption which is the absolute reciprocity between these three prisoners, so that each prisoner can see the other as the mirror image of himself and put himself in other's shoes, which this kind of reciprocity for me is rather a fantasy of the real inter, uh, interhuman relations in our actual life. And if we mm, follow Lacan's... Yeah, in yeah. this bit, you said you take very seriously the idea that one of the prisoner can be stupid or the prisoner can be much smarter than you. That we, we shouldn't assume that the prisoners are mirror images of ourselves. Oh, yeah, that that's right? true. Yeah, I think that's uh, how in the real world human interacts with each other because they they are uh, actually there's uh, a sense of otherness between one and uh, another, and everyone don't assume that they can totally understand their fellow beings. But in this uh, uh, a three prisoner problem. In order to come up with Lacan's perfect solution, we have to simplify the human relation, which I find is maybe quite problematic. And uh, if we also follow Lacan's later work that introduce uh, more complexities, such as a uh, sense of otherness into the idea of intersubjectivity, we should see that the tension between a logical process and a spontaneous temporal experience are already quite evident. So this is actually the foundation upon which I introduced the idea of multiple temporal registers. Yeah, that's really helpful. I mean, I remember when I was reading 
the logical time essay thinking how almost unlacanian it was that he um, kind of required us to postulate this idea that we could assume that all of the prisoners had the same level of intelligence because it, it seems so fundamental to a Lacanian way of thinking, precisely as you said, to understand, to consider that the other has something other about them that we um, mm -hmm. can't access. Yes. Um, so uh, just to stay with this chapter for a minute or two longer, so what, what exactly is the tension between real and symbolic time that you kind of identify in this essay? Well, in this part, uh, I try to give the idea of symbolic time and real time some very concrete forms. For me, the symbolic time appears in the three prisoner parts of Osley's logical reading sequence that uh, start from a moment of instant observation and uh, moves on to the process of reasoning and then end with a moment of concluding. So this is a reasoning pro uh, process or sequence validated only by the big other, which is the wording of the prison. So the prisoner can only participate in this alienating temporal movement step by step in order to have his own identity recognized by the other. Uh, real time, on the other hand, does not subordinate to this symbolic order or to this logical articulation. It's the very moment the individual or the prisoner comes to realize that I have to make a decision by myself to determine who I am or what the color of my disc is. So it's a kind of create a founding moment for the subject to self-determinate and thus to uh, disrupt the rule that governs his existence. And uh, the tension between the real and the symbolic time is a very tension between the moment of freedom and the time of the law. So mm. this opposition, uh, I believe, not only appears in this uh, logical time essay on Lacan's early work, I also demonstrate in my book that it's a very important theme in Lacan's work that will reappear in many other seminars uh, or in many other writings as well. Mm. So if I understand correctly, what you're saying is there's a way of understanding a kind of prisoner's dilemma where you could think of it solely in terms of the rules of the game and the, what you call the law, and that would mm -hmm. be a kind of symbolic time. And then there's this separate question of the subject making a decision outside of those rules, and that's the real time. Is, is that right? Mm -hmm. Yes, that's true. Yes. Yeah. Um, okay. So... Um, Moving on to chapter two, which you call real time, this is where you really flesh out um, your notion of of, mm -hmm. this, of of what you call real time. Um, and I found it very interesting that here you decided to look at uh, Freud's metapsychology um, mm -hmm. and kind of examine um, some of the aspects of Freud that people, uh, I, I suppose, um, sometimes feel a bit embarrassed about because it's um, Freud dealing with kind of sort of some biological notions that have since been discredited. So what, what, why were you drawn to Freud's metapsychology in this chapter, and what were you trying to do with it? Well, after this first chapter on logical time, I think what I want to do next is to have a more comprehensive examination of real time and symbolic time, respectively. And real time, in my understanding, is deeply related to subjects' ethical choices. The emergence of an event and the possibility of freedom against temporal constraints. So I need to find an ontological foundation that makes this real time possible. 
My reading and analysis leads me to the idea of real body in Lacan's writing and then to Freud's metapsychology, which offers a quite interesting psychological account of the body process. Uh, although a lot of people will feel that Freud's original account is not scientifically valid enough, it's not really a theory of biology, but I think uh, even Lacan would agree with that argument that uh, we shouldn't uh, simply interpret it in terms of biology, but rather in terms of uh, analogy between our biological process and our mental activities. So it's more like a philosophical inquiry that uh, using some biological metaphors as an example, mm-hmm. and I think it still has these philosophical meanings at, at the current moment. Mm. So what is bodily time? Um, when we speak of time, I think we mostly think of our time consciousness, which is how we consciously perceive and experience time. So, mm-hmm. But uh, what we um, often overlook is that our body or the our organism is also in constant flux. It also experiences changes in both the external and the internal environment. So time not only perceived by our mind, it's also perceived by body, and it is reflected in the body rhythm. So how does this fundamental organic sense of time give rise to our temporal consciousness? And uh, how does a human subject move from this bodily passive perception of time to a subjective understanding of time? I think these are quite important problems we need to ask if we want to truly understand the body-mind problem and to understand how the subjects uh, interact and uh, perform his agency in more embodied ways. So my understanding of body time is that it's not uh, uh, relied on the body as a biologically determined entity nor is it simply a blank surface that can be reshaped and configured by uh, maybe cultural forces or social forces. Instead, I understand it in terms of a body machine, which is outside of what is being symbolized, but it can passively or perpetually receive and disseminate uh, uh, bodily tensions or, or excitations in a way that helps us uh, to define or resist our imaginary ego's manipulation, our our body image. So our ego may create what we see a coherent body, a unified image, but our body may not really agree with it. It has its own movement, its own tensions, and it uh, uh, produces its own demand. So there are this kind of uh, time difference between how we imaginary perceive time and how the body process time. And uh, this difference for me may be a foundation that helps us to understand the possibility of freedom that transcends this egoistic individuals and uh, conditions an act of liberation from our imagined uh, temporal order. Mm, that's really interesting. Could you say a bit more about how that uh, enables us to think of an idea of freedom? Because I guess my immediate reaction mm-hmm. would be to think if if the body is kind of just receiving excitations, then what what about that has has to do with freedom? It sounds like a potentially very passive experience. Um. Well, I think it's uh, 
uh, and passive in a way that it's passively doing some active things at the same time. So because mm. uh, let's go back to our imaginary time or what I say, call our consciously current time, we often construct this idea of past, present, and the future in this kind of linear ways. But what really is the future? We always say that the future uh, uh, equals some kind of openness or some kind of freedom that is waiting for the subjects in a, like, a very far away horizon. But uh, uh, the idea of future in the conscious often require this kind of delays or waiting so that uh, the future can never be really actualized. It's always something that uh, past the present but not present. But in terms of the bodily time, I would say the past, present, and future are all all converted into a same temporal horizons. They are uh, in each other. Or we should say that there is a future in present or there is a past in present. And uh, mm-hmm. in Freudian or in Lacanian cycle analysis, I find the idea of real or future are primarily presented in the idea of death drive. Uh, it's kind of uh, uh, oftenly conventionally interpreted as uh, destructive forces. But for me, it's rather a liberating forces because it help us to disrupt the ego's binding of the energy and uh, producing some disruptive uh, ways for the subject to open itself towards the future, but not waiting for the future. So there is some action always going on in the body that uh, leads the subject to a sense of freedom. So it's something about the way that the body can challenge the ego's attempt to have a coherent yes, understanding. Yes, yes, that's the basic logic. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's really great. I mean, it. Um, it I felt when I was reading this book, it's. Um, <clears throat> I guess it kind of proves your point in a way. It's such a challenge to constantly hold in mind that there are all of these different experiences of time that we're not conscious of, and perhaps our conscious ego even tries to um, refuse acknowledging. Oh, yes. Um, yeah, so it takes a lot of kind of um, mental fortitude in a way, uh, or maybe openness. I'm not sure what the right term is in order to um, accept that all of these different registers of time are at some level being experienced, but, um, you know, are hard to conceptualize. Um, okay, let's look at the following chapter on symbolic time. Um and here, uh, I was interested in, in your exploration of um, Freud's, I, Freud's claim that the unconscious is timeless. And you said that um, we can't really take this statement at face value. So wh- what's the problem with thinking about the unconscious as timeless? Well, the problem is actually, uh, what is the meaning of timeless? So there are, I think, different ways of understanding these notions. Conventionally speaking, or from most of the commentators of Freud, they would understand timeless as permanence, or to simply put, it's forever the same, something that always uh, uh, staying in the same place and has kind of determining effects on all the later events. Uh, in Freud's work, we can see this time timeless in terms of the infantile wishes and the uh, infantile experience that even in adult dreams uh, we 
often find the determining forces not coming from our uh, very early life stages. So Freud may believe that these are what we call the timeless content. But I think there are a lot of problems in this kind of interpretation because it somehow contradicts with the other characterizations of consciousness, even in Freud's own work. For example, uh, Freud argues that the unconscious is dominated by the primary process, which uh, is uh, this kind of mental activities that will instantly discharge excitations and tensions without holding them. But how is it that the unconscious can perceive unsatisfied wishes in order for them to become timeless if they are only dominated by primary process? So these two arguments kind of contradict with each other. So that's why I think uh, the second reading uh, comes, which uh, is to say that timelessness should be understood not as the absolute absence of time, but rather a different time, which is not to be confused with our everyday conception of or our everyday consciousness of time. So what timelessness denies is not the existence of time, but rather our imaginary construction of time. It introduces different time registers, um, very much separated from our inner time consciousness, one that manifests itself to the subject as a radical sense of otherness. Mm-hmm. And is this what you would refer to as symbolic time? Yes, that's true. It's uh, the uh, foundational uh, moment that introduced uh, some basic idea of symbolic time, but most uh, other aspects of symbolic time will be developed by Lacan himself. Mm-hmm. So it it seemed in this chapter, one of the things I noticed was a kind of um, that you were implicitly maybe challenging the way that uh, some psychoanalysts might focus on early childhood. Um, what what do you think is the problem with um, thinking about things in these terms? Um, well, I don't think I'm the first one to challenge this kind of assumptions on the uh, importance of early childhood memories. In fact, in psychoanalytic literature, there has already been a lot of debate around these notions and whether it's still clinically useful in today's therapy and practice. But what I did is to introduce a more theoretical or a temporal perspective that uh, reject these assumptions and refu- and replace it with a more useful or relevant ideas. So maybe empirically speaking, I think this childhood memory, to say that they determine all our adult dreams, or to say that they determine all the symptom f- formation for the adult, lacks empirical evidence according to contemporary neuro and cognitive science studies. But even in Freud's own work, we can see that um, this kind of childhood uh, determination memories, they will require the existence of a class of fantasy, which the theory of mind uh, cannot permit to exist uh, in terms of uh, what I mentioned earlier, the uh, secondary process and the primary process, there is this kind of contradiction. Uh, to see uh, whether one can really hold or reserve these memories without the involvement of the ego. So if unconscious is truly 
uh, timeless, we shouldn't really prioritize childhood memory simply because they happened earlier or they are some older memories, all which is, directly speaking, should be of equal importance and equal powers. And uh, even in Freud's some um, case studies, for example, the dreams of the Irma's injections, he didn't really find those early childhood wishes, but simply some uh, recent uh, wishes related to uh, recent events. So that may also prove the idea of early childhood memories may not be as important as we believe. Mm. And and do you think, does this connect in some way then to the concept of symbolic time, or does symbolic time help us understand how we can overcome this focus on childhood memories? Uh, I think um, that's true, because by uh, giving up the idea of early childhood memory, uh, not seeing it as the only determinating factors that determines our symbolism formation, we actually opens up quite a lot of space to think the other factors or other dimensions of time that can pro- provide us with different resources for us to do dream interpretation or do analysis of the symptoms. Uh, the symbolic time stands for what articulated in the symbolic chain outside of the individual consciousness. So it involves a lot of political, social, cultural articulations in the background, but they always has a very indirect influence on how we experience ourselves and how we perceive ourselves. So they kind of give us this kind of externally located knowledge that uh, is very much related to some symptom we will form in our later years. And I think the Many therapists now start to look at these connections, to look at the historical or social background, not just one's family dramas, so to have a better understanding of one's uh, the whole life history or how he developed uh, the development from his early to the current stages. Mm, that yeah, that kind of connects to my my final question about this chapter, which is um I know this is not your book was not written as a kind of um you know offering suggestions on technique for practitioners, but mm-hmm. I was wondering if these ideas gave you if you have anything in mind about what implications this might have for clinical psychoanalytic technique. Uh, yes, my book is not uh theoretically oriented, but. Uh, uh, when I'm writing these chapters, I think I have, uh, I, I do hope to have some more conversations with therapists or with practitioners in terms of how the time can be understood in the clinical settings and if we can try to uh, comprehend those different temporal dimensions and use them to help uh, the patient to understand themselves. So my idea of symbolic time is to introduce this uh, uh, externally located knowledge or some knowledge that's produced outside of our life but has a direct relevance to our beings. So I think uh, how to convert this kind of notions into some 
techniques can be a quite interesting um, research of uh, uh, the direction of research that uh, will lead to some further project. Yeah, I mean, I guess I was just thinking in particular um, because we were speaking about you know childhood memories that I guess given that you say that you know suggest that this shouldn't be um, one shouldn't focus too much on on childhood memories as um, you know the, the necessary source of unraveling all the symptoms that it might uh, shift the way that clinicians you know might organize the way they ask questions for example mm, yes I, I think uh, it's more like uh, uh, whether one can be uh, more constructive uh, constructively informed to no, use the notion of social constructions or maybe cultural or historical interpretations to comprehend a more complex pictures of one's life, not just reducing an individual to the maybe to the shadow of his early childhood struggles. So it may help us understand more of the social regions of the symptom. Yes. Yeah, it just it just occurred to me as you were saying that that this might also be something of an answer to the kind of work by um, post-colonial and critical race kind of um, psychoanalytic critics who who say that you know psychoanalysis needs to incorporate the wider socio social history of a subject instead of just their kind of individual life history. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so um, moving on to your chapter on symptomatic time. Um, it's a great um, term, symptomatic time. Could you just tell us uh, what, what is symptomatic time? Well, symptomatic time is not uh, as the three temporal registers uh, we have discussed earlier. It does not designate a particularly temporal process, but uh, rather indicates how the symptom and the subject's temporary brains share a similar uh, characters in its formation. So they both need some kind of a compromise formation in which opposite or contradiction tendencies are contested with each other and uh, find their partial expressions through this temporal formation. So it's a term that I use to understand the subject's formation. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this chapter, you um, explore the way that Freud tries to find a kind of um, potentially phylogenetic origin uh, for the subject or for symptoms. So what, what, um, what, what are you trying to do here and why are you um, exploring this question of Freud's search for an origin? Uh, so in order to answer the question about subject formation, we always go back to the kind of original moment. But uh, uh, what does this original moment mean in time? I think there are a lot of debates, and uh, the most famous one is in the psychoanalysis, the debate between Freud and Rank in terms of whether the origin is uh, early childhood trauma that actually happened or the Oedipus complex that retrospectively uh, projects a fantasy back to the origin. So, so this is uh, kind of the debate between... Yeah, so this is a debate, debate uh, that I use as the background of my discussion because I see that there is a crucial problem in both of these two thinkers' argument is to reduce time to this kind of linear notions. 
to they both try to find this kind of original location whether it's actually happened or it's just imaginarily constructed. But I see the origin not as a single moment, but rather as a mechanism that keeps happening or it's an ongoing process that will persist into our adult life. So it's an origin where we always convert our real body demand into the symbolic representations. So this is what I see as the origin. So is that almost like a, a constantly reoccurring origin? Yes, that's true. So it's just to uh, reject the myth of origin as the earliest or as the only things that must happen in one's life, but to see it as a mechanism or as a process that uh, uh, happens between different temporal registers, not within one temporal, temporal mm-hmm. movement. Right. Yeah. I was I was very um amused to see that in this chapter also you um worked a bit with uh, Jean Laplanche um and it, uh, I guess I found it funny because I I think I did something a bit similar in my own thesis where I mostly deployed a kind of Lacanian framework and then there was a moment when I thought it was very important to go into the work of Laplanche. Um so could you say what what were you doing here? You were working with the concept of the enigmatic signifier. So um, what what did you gain from this idea? And uh, also, what was your kind of criticism of it? Oh, well, I go go to Laplanche's idea is uh, because I find that he offers a lot of uh, interesting points related to our understanding of uh, how the symbolics uh, influence individuals. So in Laplanche, in his reading of Freud, he also like Lacan criticized Freud's tendency to reduce the origin to an exclusively biological moment. So he rebuilt this kind of theoretical connection between the primal seduction and the primal repressions, uh, not in the sense of conforming the happening of an actual seduction but to introduce the idea of otherness in the formation of subjectivity. In his argument, uh, he suggests that the early child-parent uh, relations, there must be some enigmatic message coming from the parent that cannot be totally processed or assimilated by the child. Instead, these messages become some alienating factors that so externally determines the subject's own internal psychic structures. It's this otherness embedded in the enigmatic message that produces uh, a destabilizing effect. So both Laplanche and Lacan reject the idea of biological origin and they both argue that infantile development is immersed in the symbolic world. But what differentiates Lacan from Laplanche of what differentiated my reading of Lacan is that uh, Laplanche still insists on the role of the small other, which is the real actual parenting and how they transmit the enigmatic signifier to the child. So it's still an episode in the early childhood memory. It's still one moment and one event. But for Lacan, what he emphasizes is the whole idea of the big other and the, the involving process of the signifying chain. So it's a constant 
influence is always uh, happening at different stages of one's life. Uh, the mm. second difference is that uh, Lacan somehow gives this kind of more active role to the individual uh, in his interaction with the symbolic world. So the infant or the subject is no longer just a passive recipient of this signifier, but he may actively invest uh, his own energies or his own uh, instinctual drives into an outward signifier to say to develop this kind of connection between the symbolic and himself, so to have himself represented by uh, another object and to engage in the world in a more active way. So this is what I think maybe Laplanche's reading is lacking. Mm, yeah, it reminds me of um, somewhere Alenka Zupanchich writes about a, a step that Laplanche might miss where the child is receiving this enigmatic message and for Laplanche, the message contains some kind of meaning that the child, the child tries to decipher. And Zupanchich kind of says that before this happens, there has to be that the child posits the idea that something means, that the very idea of meaning itself um, is a kind of subjective moment that maybe Laplanche leaves out in his in his narrative. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think that's true. Yeah. Um, okay, well, I want to make sure we have uh, some time to discuss the final chapter of your book um, called Sext Time, uh, because I thought this was a really unique um, chapter. Um, so. Could you tell us a bit about how this came about? It, I noticed that in this one, you kind of engaged with some feminist and queer theory. Oh, well, I also consider this chapter maybe the most important one in my book. Uh, and uh, I kind of regard all the previous chapters as theoretical preparations, and this chapter as the final moment when everything comes to fruition. Because personally, I have a long-standing interest in gender theories uh, and in queer theories as well. And since I started to read psychoanalysis, I noticed this tension between the insistence of a dualistic framework of sexual difference in Freudian Lacanian psychoanalysis and the various social construction of gender and sexual plantations in gender and queer theories. So this is a very strong tension or contradiction that persisted from the Freudian time to contemporary uh, societies. So I want to find a kind of solution or a way to or help us find a compromise formation between those different tendencies. And for me, the previous Lacanian response to this problem is not really satisfying. Many Lacanian psychoanalysts believe that Lacan's theory of sexuation has already escaped the pitfalls of Freudian psychoanalysis. It's uh, no longer philocentrical because Lacan uh, emphasized the idea of symbolic, not just the biological body. But uh, I want to demonstrate in this chapter that uh, in so far as a new temporal perspective has not been introduced, the previous solution uh, is not enough for us to really save Lacan from those philocentrical accusations. Lacan's work on this topic has not really be interrupted, uh, interpreted in a way that can sufficiently respond to the complexities of contemporary issues around, around gender identities. And my intention is not to make 
another ontological claim about what sexuality is or what gender is, but I want to offer a new epistemological model that permits a more tolerant understanding of the experience of being sex or being gendered. Mm-hmm. So what? let's start with first, why do you think that the um, so far the answers that Lacanian um, practitioners and scholars have offered to uh, the question of gender constructions and sexuality, why, why have the answers so far been insufficient? And then maybe you could say a bit about what, what different way of approaching the question you offer. Mm-hmm. So first we may look at what progress Lacanian's sacrifice has made in uh, comparing to the Freud's original argument. So I think Lacan has provided a quite strong defense of the value of sexual difference. Uh, for example, Lacan would argue that uh, men and women are merely signifiers that related to the use of language, not really to our bodily difference. Um, and uh, there are a lot, lot of uh, different factors need to be considered when we talk about sexual identification and uh, how the desires are determined through the negotiation between drive and the law in the constitution of the subject. Uh, on the other hand, Lacan also makes the point very clear that uh, the symbolic difference is this kind of real difference. So it cannot be easily symbolized uh, to uh, our popular understanding of what man is and what woman is. Sexual difference functions as the limit of signification, and it forces every uh, subject to confront his inherent antagonism. So what's wrong with this theory? I think there are maybe two major issues. One is that it uh, still does not solve the problem of failures, and uh, it does not truly explain why failures is still determined to different sexual positions. Even it's argued uh, that failures is only articulated at a symbolic level. I think we all can agree that uh, this idea cannot be completely disassociated from the penis or from its biological functions by insisting that the relation between sex continue to be indicated by referring to the phallic function. I think we are returning to the symbolization of the anatomical sexual difference and not really moving to a different level. Mm-hmm. Also, in Lacan's accepting, mm-hmm. I guess, a bit of Judith Butler's kind of criticism yeah. of the of Yes, the I think, but uh, I also uh, recognize the real difference in Lacan's work, which I think maybe Judith Butler didn't uh, really uh, I think she used uh, uh, social constructions to replace this kind of real sexual difference but uh, in Lacan, even we recognize that, yes, there are real sexual difference, but how it uh, represents itself in our everyday maybe gender and sexual identifications, it's not clear if we don't uh, understand it from a temporal perspective. Uh, so this is why in the original graph of situation in Seminar 20 in Lacan's work, uh, we still see this kind of two opposite uh, positions, one is a feminine position and one is masculine position. No matter how we interpret this formula, I think we are are still trapped by this kind of uh, spatial differentiation between one space which occupied by a phallus, the other space which uh, lacks uh, this kind of signifier or lacks a very determining 
uh, moment uh, determining factors. So this uh, spatial arrangement still uh, can still originate from uh, Freud's original argument, having or not having opinions, it's just uh, converted into a more symbolic level, having or not having the feathers. So I think to distract this kind of framework, we need to totally change our perceptions of how how time and space functions. Right, yeah. So how does how does a temporal reading help us overcome some of these problems then? Uh, I think uh, by introducing a temporal perspective, I want to change, first to change uh, the job of psychoanalysis in terms of dealing with uh, uh, situation dealing with uh, sexual identities. So I argue it's not the job of psychoanalysis to tell us what uh, gender is or what sexuality is. Since uh, this kind of uh, personal gender identity always uh, depend on the complex negotiation between one's own body desire and uh, the social cultural context. So yeah. Any attempt to offer this kind of transcendental masculine or feminine position is always oversimplified and misleading. Psychoanalysis, mm-hmm. on the other hand, can offer us an understanding of becoming a sex subject. So it can ask this question, which is through what kind of process does a sex body become symbolically representable, if only in an incomplete sense. So it's... Uh, uh, states at a neutral ground, but uh, the question is the way an individual becomes a sex being. And uh, this process uh, actually is uh, uh, rec- may lead to two different solutions. One is a masculine um, reading and one is a feminine reading. So this uh, masculine feminine which applied here does not mean some ontological body, but means two kind of uh, epistemological approaches to uh, one unified process of being sex. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> could you say a little bit, I know it's a quite complex um, argument that you make, but could you say a little bit about what these two types of processes are then? Mm-hmm. Yes, so I think uh, to make my argument, I started with uh, uh, Freud's test and I go back to Freud's idea of the primary, primal view, which is, uh, for me, it's the kind of overlooked idea in Freud's work because we all understand, we all know about the Freud, Freud's work of primal sin, which is the moment uh, uh, the infant uh, see the parent's sexual intercourse and uh, become traumatized. But a few people realize that Freud also gives us a picture of how all the boys and girls see the other partner's genital area and become uh, realized of their sexual difference. And this is a very interesting moment for me is that Freud argues in his 1925 paper that the little boy who catches the sight of the girl's genital regions only makes sense of what he found retrospectively that after many years. But a girl will make her judgment at that very moment. So there is already a temporal difference at uh, this primal view, which defines sexual difference, not in terms of having or not having penis, but in terms of 
how the knowledge of protective defense uh, generated. So this is where I think that the uh, epistemology of sex subjectivity can be differentiated. And there are actually two ways of understanding how one becomes a sex being. One is from this kind of masculine way to say that uh, uh, fellas is always there and we respectively becomes who we are. The other is uh, following maybe Lacan's idea of the future interior to say that uh, we will have become this kind of sex being and fellas uh, all this kind of uh, uh, biological determining factor is holding a um, moment that will be surpassed in our progress or in our development. Mm. So, so the masculine way of becoming, you're saying, is this kind of retrospective realization of yeah. The I think the masculine way is a kind of uh, confirms you not know, kind of sociological normativities to that will ultimately place an individual either in a masculine position or, mm-hmm. or a feminine position. But the, uh, the other way is help us to promote uh, a more tolerant or more opening perspective to deal with this kind of very uncertain culture of sexuality itself and to accommodate more viable sexual arrangements. So how is it, I'm, I'm just trying to work my way through, so how is it that the idea that the, in, in Freud's narrative, the little girl instantly recognizes that she's deprived of the phallus, how does that lead you to theorizing this notion of the future anterior and as something that's more open? Uh, I think these are quite uh, complicated reasoning process in my book, but I want to maybe try to explain a little bit here. Uh, it's uh, uh, I think it's based uh, or built upon my uh, discussion of the dialectic movement between the real time and the symbolic time. One is to say the body's uh, metrics, how it uh, works in its own way. The other is to say the, how the symbolic uh, produces uh, its own articulation of personal identity and how it uh, uh, determines one's life trajectory. So in this particular case, in this case of situation, by uh, arguing that the girl can reach this conclusion instant, it uh, means doesn't mean the girl instantly realizes she is liking something, because uh, if she doesn't uh, uh, be determined by the symbolic ideas about why why fellas is important, uh, she won't be able to realize that uh, she's liking the fellas. She just realized that there is a blank space, right? So mm. uh, I think uh, this leads us to a conclusion that her argument at that point is rather she will have liked something. So this thing is uh, postponed to the future, not really realized in the present moment. So this I will have liked something is a belief, but it's not a conviction. So it uh, uh, reduces this uh, masculine body part to a single moment that lost in one's uh, process of development and uh, 
uh, when the girl grew up, he already overcome that difficulties, and uh, from he moves, she moves from what I will have become to what I will become. So it's there is this kind of step by step reasoning. Mm, okay, thank you for breaking that down <clears throat> because I know it, it is a very complicated part of the book, but I think it's also very crucial for people to get a flavor of what you talk about here because it's quite interesting and and important. Um, just another kind of follow up question on this: um, Does the conclusion that you reach then um, these different these two different ways of kind of um, becoming sexed are, are we talking in kind of ontological terms like there's a masculine way and there's a feminine way and, and people will follow one or the other and it will and that's kind of fixed in them or is there some kind of movement between one and one and the other um i think so by the end of my book uh, i no longer argues about any dualistic uh, framework of sexual difference so i no longer use this kind of masculine or feminine language to describe what sexuality is, but I still use those kind of uh, uh, vocabulary to help us to understand our way of thinking about sexual difference. So there is still this kind of traditional masculine way to think about sexual difference that will ultimately lead to our uh, very fixed uh, idea of what man is, what woman is. But there is also a more open way to think that uh, may a work alongside with feminist and queer theory to promote ways that help us accommodate different sexual arrangements and encourage some more fluid uh, sexual identity constructions based on one's own um, subjectivities, I think. Uh, just a final question on this. It seems to me... Um... This comes up over and over again. Do, do you, in kind of discussions about psychoanalysis, do you think that this reading kind of, you know, there's a there's a very common objection to the fact that in the Lacanian version of psychoanalysis, sexual difference is the kind of constitutive moment of subjectivity. And I think a lot of critics say, why is it that male and female are given this kind of import over all of these other potentially constitutive aspects of who we are? Um, do you think that this reading um, helps to unravel that a bit? Um, probably, yes, I guess, because uh, I think I still agree with Lacan and I still follow this principle that the sexual difference is a real difference. It's the uh, founding difference of uh, human sexuality. But uh, I wouldn't, I think I say it because of the reason sexuality involves uh, how our body interacts with the symbolic and it's a very uh, very good cases uh, to see how our body or how our uh, instincts how our desire and drive are incorporated into our identity formations so i think sexual difference in this uh, in this sense is uh, still relevant but uh, i will no longer understand the sexual difference as a difference between men and women or between masculinity and uh, femininity, but rather the difference as this kind of internal struggles of uh, within one's body that one always find uh, something different or something wrong with how I experience my own drive or my own desires. So this is, uh, uh, I think, a unique case for each individual 
to uh, how to find peace with his or her own body and uh, reaches an identification that can uh, connect the body with the symbolic. Uh, that's so that's very helpful. So I guess could you say then that you've made the difference between sexual difference and gender um, a lot clearer to say that this is this is really not a process we should understand in terms of gender. Uh, uh, I think it's related to the gender in the sense that it will help us to understand uh, gender identifications, uh, but uh, it will not reduce gender to those fixed uh, dualistic or binary uh, configurations. Okay, yeah. Thank you for, for exploring this with me. I mean, as you can probably tell, I have a lot of my own kind of personal academic interest in this subject. Really helpful to hear your take. Um, okay, so um, we have uh, gone over time. So just um, to ask you uh, the final question we always ask on the podcast, um, what are you working on at the moment? Uh, well, currently I'm working on a postdoctoral project uh, concerning the idea of consciousness in French uh, modern intellectual histories, including Lacan, um, Deleuze, and Merleau-Ponty. I want to produce uh, maybe psychoanalysis, uh, psychoanalytically informed philosophical answer to this kind of uh, uh, the question of what uh, consciousness is and how consciousness is related to our body. Uh, and uh, since we all know that uh, this kind of research has been quite uh, popular in the uh, analytic philosophy and uh, by uh, in this kind of philosophy of mind, but uh, there is a, a lack of research in the continental traditions. So I hope to bridge this gap by bringing psychoanalysis into the picture. Great, that sounds really fascinating. So Chen Yang, it's been a real pleasure to speak with you. Thanks so much for agreeing to come on the show and also to begin this new series on psychoanalysis and time. Yes, yeah, thank you as well.